City councils and county commissions spend an enormous amount of time working on ordinances that impact what happens with property rights, what happens with how our communities are built and how land can and can't be used. The state has some responsibility in shaping things, but the entities at that local level have a bigger impact on my life. And so who is sitting in those seats is really, really important to, to our business and just to property ownership generally. So welcome to the Urban Connect podcast. I'm Jennifer Archambault, the broker owner of Urban Provision Realtors, and I'm thrilled to be having you tuning in today. If you're here, chances are your prospective buyer, seller, or homeowner searching for clarity on the ever-changing landscape here in Texas. Come to the right place. In each episode, we'll discuss a myriad of topics, providing you with the knowledge and tools to navigate the complex realm of real estate. From insider tips on how to prepare your home for a successful sale to insights on the latest market trends and everything in between, I've got you covered. So sit back, relax, and get ready to take your real estate knowledge to the next level with the Urban Connect podcast. Property tax relief has remained a constant objective in Texas since the state's declaration from independence from Mexico in 1836. But it wasn't until 1979 that a streamlined system similar to the property tax system that we are familiar with today was established through a constitutional amendment. Over the last four decades, there have been ongoing efforts to reform the property tax system. These initiatives have been aimed to provide relief to property owners and ensure fairness for all. This leads us to the main objective of this episode, the upcoming election in Texas on November 7th. 14 proposed amendments to the Texas Constitution will be present on the November ballot, with at least three of the amendments reshaping property exemptions or property taxes. This episode will be packed full of educational nuggets, allowing Texans to have a deeper understanding of the current tax landscape from what's working and what's not, as well as get a glimpse on how local entities and schools receive funding even now and in the future. And we'll be aware of other legislative issues that could impact homeownership. I could not embark on this journey myself. And today I'm privileged to have two distinguished guests from the Texas Association of Realtors, also known as Texas Realtors, join me. Please welcome Julia Paranto, who serves as the Director of Public Policy, and Brandon Alrati, the Director of Political Affairs. Julie and Brandon collectively bring a wealth of 29 years of experience to the realm of governmental affairs at the association level, offering valuable insights to the challenges that homeowners encounter. So Julie and Brandon, it's my pleasure to host you today in Urban Connect. Thank you, Jennifer. You know, as I highlighted in the introduction of this episode, the property tax system in Texas has been undergoing changes for like, you know, two centuries, right, since Texas really got started. But the most significant overhaul, you know, apart from just increasing the homeowner's exemption, which I know we'll talk about, you know, throughout this episode, occurred back in 1979. So I don't know about you, but I'm eager to see how like these proposed amendments that's going to be on this ballot, it's going to change the landscape, not just now, but in the future. Because I think some of these amendments could potentially change how entities are taxed, how schools are funded. Like it's it's almost like a start of a race to where we go next. We are certainly on the what feels like a precipice of change here in 1979. Great year, by the way. Uh, that, <laughs> that was when I was born. Uh, but the the fascinating thing is that it's a forever ago, uh, but also not that long ago. And there are people who were there 
when uh, the bills were written in 1979 and refined in 1981, who are still working in Texas politics today, who were able to have a hand in crafting the legislation uh, that led to the proposition that we're going to be spending some time talking about. And the they are collaborating with a lot of people who were not around back then. And so you've got a great mix of that historical knowledge and new ideas about the world, where the world is and where we're going to go from here that kind of collaborated to get to that, that final product. So we are very optimistic about where things are going. That's exactly right. It's, it, I mean, we've been tinkering with property taxes ever since the current system came into play in 1979. It always seems like there's something on the ballot, but I think this year is, I mean, this is landmark legislation. It's. I mean, I think the last legislation that we had was a few years ago. It was, what, a couple years ago. It was increasing the homestead exemption from, what, 25 to 40. That was Proposition 2 and I think, 2022, and it was on a May ballot. So it was a, a lot smaller electorate, but that passed with about 86%. Of so, Brandon, can you talk about that? Because there's May elections and there's sometimes March elections and there's sometimes November elections. Can you talk about the different election cycles and why one is more important than the other? Well, I mean, you're talking to the political director. I've spent most of my adult life trying to get people out to vote. I think every election is important. You know, you mentioned the May elections. Those are typically municipal elections. You know, school boards, some city councils, although a lot of city councils have started the transition to November. You mentioned also March elections. Those are typically primary elections. So you'll see, you know, partisan primaries, the Democratic and the Republican parties host primaries to determine their candidate of choice. Uh, and then those play into the general election. So the victors of the primary elections go off to the general and, and face off against each other in a, in a general election. Generally speaking, you see a lot higher turnout at November elections, and you that can vary. There's three kinds of November elections. In odd years like we're in right now, those are those are usually constitutional amendment elections. That's after the legislature meets and takes action. If they can get something on the ballot, which takes two-thirds of each chamber, then that goes to... Uh, a proposition, a proposed amendment on the ballot. And then you'll have, uh, like we had last year in 2022, what's called a midterm election. That's an election that is in the middle of a presidential term. And then you'll have, like we'll have next year in 2024, you'll have presidential elections. And the turnout varies in all of those. It's wildly fascinating to see the numbers of voters coming into the polls during those. They're thinking, oh, it's not election year. It's not important. And you know, my belief system is even those city elections are some of those most important elections to be a part of because the state has some responsibility in shaping things, but the entities at that local level have a bigger impact on my life sometimes than the state does. Again, all elections are important, but those local elections, you typically see turnout of like five and six percent of the electorate. So it's it's real important to get out in those. And you have a chance to, I would say, punch above your weight class. Right. Because you're you're actually carrying the weight of a lot of citizens when you do that. If there's you know 40,000 eligible voters and only 4000 of them show up. Guess what? You're voting for 10 people. To your comment on on local elections for a real estate audience, people who are working in in this profession or anybody who even might want to be a consumer of real estate, the city councils and county commissions spend an enormous amount of their time working on ordinances that impact uh, what happens with property rights, what happens with how our communities are built and how land can and can't be used. And so who is sitting in those seats is really, really important to, to our business 
and just to property ownership generally. I agree. And I think that's why I wanted to start that off first, because I think that every election that we have that you hear in the news, you you know, you get something, a flyer in the mail, pay attention to it because they all eventually have an impact on homeownership at some point and or some reference to it. So, but let's talk about this upcoming election. So I mentioned that there's 14 amendments to the constitution or proposed amendments. If I read properly, it looks like three of those, you know, directly impact homeownership in some form or fashion. So can we talk about those three? Like what amendments will be on the ballot? You know, the homestead is the, one of the biggest one, but like. Sure. Well, I'll start with Proposition 4. That's one that uh, Texas Realtors has taken a position in support of. And if, if you want to talk about all the amendments, your listeners can find a lot of information about those amendments at TexasRealtorsSupport.com. And that's two S's, Texas Realtors and then support.com. What we do on that is we'll, of course, Texas Realtors has taken a position on five of those amendments, and hopefully we can get to some of those as well. But we also put up information about the amendments where, we've, where we remain neutral. So kind of an import, so supporters say, opponents say, here's the legislation if you want to go look it up and see how it'll affect you. So specifically on property taxes, I'll start with Proposition 4. That actually has got tremendously long ballot language. It's 129 words. And it does a lot of things. It does actually five things. But the number one thing that it does, and I think the, the thing that most of your listeners will be interested in, is it raises the homestead exemption from 40000 to 100000 What that means is that if you had a homestead, i.e. A, a property you own and that you live in as your primary residence, and you've applied for that exemption, the first $100,000 of that home's value are tax-free for the school district taxes. That's substantial savings. School districts typically make up the biggest portion of your tax bill. So having that exemption increase uh, from 40,000 to 100,000 is, is tremendous. And that was something that you know we really want to thank uh, the legislature for putting in there. That was really important to us. There was a bit of a budget surplus, which I think you want to talk about to, with Julia about. Um, but there's some other, some other things that the, the language does as well. Puts new things around the, the way appraisal districts are, appraisal district boards of directors are composed. We've got also some, some language that specifically benefits uh, elderly citizens and disabled citizens in there so they can take advantage of the most possible exemptions. And then there's a pilot program to run a 20% uh, appraisal cap on non-homestead properties. So, um, the- and that's that's big because I'm, a, I'm an investor, right? So right now I don't have an appraisal cap. So year to year to year, the the taxing uh, the taxing authority can or the county appraisal district can say your value is X. I just as my pro- home, my um, primary residence can only go up ten percent year to year on my investment property. The sky's the limit. And as you know, we've had this crazy market in the past couple of years, and homeowners had, you know, 300% increase year to year to year. It's not sustainable for our market, whether it be Texas, Austin, Houston, doesn't really matter. But I think having a component, do you think, and this is speculation, but do you think moving forward, I mean, it's a pilot program. It's a, it's a look and see and watch. Do you think that it's going to stick around if you had a guess? I'll jump in and say maybe. And Jennifer, I think uh, it's important to Brandon and I to make sure that we clarify that Texas Realtors 
has not always supported uh, incre- uh, adding or expanding appraisal caps. Um, and that sounds to a lot of people counterintuitive. But the thing is, uh, is that the appraised values are, are just that. They are supposed to be a neutral number to which local taxing entities will then apply a tax rate based on how many dollars they want to bring in from property taxes every year. And so if the, if the dollar amount that they need and want to bring in for uh, their property tax levy total uh, every year doesn't change or increases, it doesn't matter if your property valuation is a million dollars or a dollar. It's going to be how they apply uh, the tax rate and, and the, the rest of that calculation to assess you a bill. Furthermore, uh, appraisal caps, when they get really low, uh, like really tight, they have a tendency to be really distortive on real estate markets and they impact people in really disparate ways. So property owners who um, are able to buy uh, when things are, are really affordable and then hold on to that property forever and ever and ever, uh, they are going to see a benefit that someone who is just buying their first house 10 years down the line will not. And it, there's always some, some disper, um, some differentiation uh, in properties when, you know, if you've owned it for a long time, certainly, you know, that, that happens, but uh, a really low appraisal cap means that it's the government coming in and saying, so, you know, I bought this property back in 1980 for, uh, you know, $100,000 and it's worth $3 million now, but I'm still being taxed on $100,000. And someone who buys, uh, buys now is not going, they're making up my tax bill that I'm not paying. So that's why they do not. And it sounds like like we're really speculating, but we can look uh, at California because California did this in 1979, by the way. Again, big year for property taxes. So they uh, they passed a very, very low appraisal cap, a 1% appraisal cap year over year. And that is exactly what's happening. I have talked to people I know personally who own property out there that they bought in the early 80s that is now worth millions and millions of dollars. They are not. They are being taxed on sixty thousand dollars or whatever it was, you know, with that very slow little creep up um, since they were able to own it. And it's it's really a profoundly unfair system and has led to people being trapped in properties. Uh, You know, people who who don't need to sell get a huge benefit. But people who do need to sell find themselves in a really hard place. So all of that to say, that's why Texas Realtors has always been opposed to lowering and expanding appraisal caps in Texas. In the case of what we saw this year, we did ultimately support that compromise package. And this this piece of it that y'all are talking about here, adding a 20% year-over-year appraisal cap on non-homesteaded properties uh, for three years. It's a test pilot. We're going to see how it works. But 20% is so much different than 1% or even 5%, which was a proposal at some point during the legislative session here. Uh, So 20% is high enough that it won't distort the markets the way a really low one was, which was why we were comfortable saying, all right, go for it. Let's, Let's try it out and see what happens. So if you go back and look historically, let's say you go back and look the past 25 to 30 years, we always had those three to seven, you know, 
roller coasters. Properties went up about two or three percent, down two or three percent. It was a roller coaster. So I think 20%, in my opinion, is safe because, like you said, if you're only allowing that 1% increase to come into your taxing and see uh, residents and, and, you know, Texans are losing out on those services because they're not getting the budget for it, is I guess what you're trying to say. Is, um, but um, I'm, I'm grateful to see something for homeowners because homeowners have uh, that, that are non owner occupants because they have shared the biggest burden, as you said. You know, case in point, like you did in main example, I'm not going to sell my house. I'm only paying a half a million dollars taxes. I could sell it for double, but I'm not going to. Like you said, I'm trapped. I'm not doing it. Right. Yeah. And it resets once you sell. So the new place you buy is going to be at today's rate, not at what you had when you bought this one. Yeah. And that, um, again, is is a real life experience that we see playing out in, in California and some other states where they have that. The policymakers and advocates like us are uh, trying to figure out how to how to get over those hurdles without undoing uh, what they did in 1979, because it's very popular, but it has led to a whole bunch of other problems. And so um, that's been a very complex process and one that we would like to avoid here in Texas if we can. And so again, why we've, why we feel good about where some of the conversations about uh, tax dollar spending, I know we're going to talk about that. um, And some of the other angles that the Texas legislature approached, approached, this uh, this debate from. So, Julie, can you talk about the budget? Because, you know, this is happening because of a budget surplus. You know, yes and no. Um, I think that property taxes, property tax reform in, you know, following the markets that we've had here in Texas over the last three years, I think it would have been a topic of conversation at the legislature no matter what. And I think um, what what we had with the benefit of a, a big uh, a big budget surplus was just that we could they could do more. And it's it's important to know too that while future legislatures will have to kind of affirm that uh, that spending year over year, we've now set the stage for them to do that, uh, and it's going to be it would be very very difficult for them to not do that in subsequent years. So the, the budget surplus was historic. Uh, near it was thirty two thirty two point seven billion dollars, I believe. I keep saying nearly thirty three billion, so I've started to get a little fuzzy on exactly what the figure was, but it's a lot of money. Um, and that means though that a lot of people are asking for it when you have a lot of money. And so the legislature had some really hard choices to make. Uh, people come with so many really worthy ideas of how you could spend a budget surplus like that. And, you know, getting 181 legislators plus the governor, plus the lieutenant governor on the same page about how to do it is, is a real challenge. And ultimately, um, you know, you, you wind up compromising and, and not being able to do everything that you wish you could. But the legislative leadership with the governor, the speaker of the house and the lieutenant governor, all three of, of those officers were speaking very publicly about property tax reform at the start of session. It was one of the, one of the, the big topic issues that they all agreed was a thing they wanted to do. 
And so, you know, it just became a debate on the how. And they ultimately, uh, for the tax package, what what they wound up doing uh, was 12 points, just under $13 billion in school tax compression. And we'll, we can talk about that a little bit more. But effectively, it just means that the state's putting a lot more money into schools so that we don't have to pay for it at the local level. So in Texas, we have a system in which... We, we pay for our schools uh, in a group effort. The local taxes and state, state revenues come together to fill each uh, school district bucket. And really what it says is that whatever the locals will fill the bucket to, to the level they can. And then the state is obligated to come and make sure that it gets the rest that they need. And, yeah. Yeah. And so what effectively this plan did this year was the state said, tell you what, we're going to put in this much more money and then y'all can just fill the bucket this this rest of the way. So it takes the burden off the local school taxes that that we all pay. And that's a, a huge chunk of money. And it is one that 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 will alleviate tax burden on every every property within an ISD. So not just homesteads, not just residential property at all. It's going to be for every property, commercial, it's whatever you might be. And so that's the biggest piece of it. Each entity, taxing entity, sets rates what they need, right? A district, uh, the school district does the, you know, fireplace, whatever, and they're the water. So what can a Texan see is the is the district still going to set their rate? And then how is this budget surplus? Are we going to see a massive shift downward in that taxable rate? Or how is it going to be divvied up? Yes. So there is uh, contained within the legislation around all of this, there is a uh, the, the school districts will have to bring uh, their their rates down a bit, um, but they will still go through their normal budgeting process. They're just factoring in this this state money as they do it, um, and so that's where the the lightening of the load at the local level will come for for taxpayers. Now, when you talk about a city or a county, um, so Texas does not collect a statewide property tax. We're actually constitutionally prohibited from doing so. We uh, we all got together as voters at some point and said, no, thank you, please. We don't want the state of Texas to collect a property tax. So all of our property taxes are handled at the local level. It's just the schools where there's kind of the, 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 the fully formed joint system where state and local money is going into it. For a city or a county or a special taxing district like a MUD or a hospital district or whatever it might be, those are local budgets. Now, um, cities, all of those entities get money from the state and probably some from the federal government too to help you know do some of the things they do, but it's not the same way that schools that schools do. So really, um, cities and counties are, are paying their own budgets with their property taxes, which is why when we get really technical about these conversations, we, we try to speak specifically that what the state money is going to is school taxes and not your city taxes, not your county taxes or anything like that, because that's where the state can actually uh, make an impact. Make an impact. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, annual The annual budgets have already been put together and decided the the tax rates are already decided but this is kind of backwards this year because we're not voting until d- November. 
normally October-ish, we would know kind of what that final bill is going to be. This year, you're not going to know till later, I guess, because we have to see if this passes before it can be adopted, correct? Technically, yes. Um, I think that your central appraisal districts around the state and uh, the school districts are making plans, uh, presuming that all of this will pass and be fine so that it is ready to roll. When the legislature passed uh, passed the legislation in the second special session, which was just you know mid-July, like July 14th, something like that, um, the, the next week, we talked to uh, chief appraisers who are saying they were going to be spending the next week factoring in that's the school compression money so that that was included in their appraisal roles and that they could give it. So they're already doing that work. Um, yeah. So there, there are some things uh, that are in Proposition 4 that just will not uh, be able to roll out until next week or next week, next year. Um uh, the, the appraisal cap that we were talking about, that will be based on January 1, 2024 values and going, going forward. So the 2023 tax rate that these entities just came up with, and they came up with, with you know, tax rate for, you know, all these different var- various areas, that's going to stick. It's going to be 2024 that has the pivot and the change based on the based on the vote. Yes, but the uh, but again, it's our understanding that the ISDs right now for their 2024 budgeting process and their tax, tax rate setting process that they've been doing here in, in August, September, some of them honestly are still finalizing it, uh, that that is factoring in the compression. That So I'll, yeah, so that's going to so on this on this tax bill that's due January 31, it will be factored in. Yes. Now we have heard. Um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to say this is universal, but we have also heard that some appraisal districts around the state are factoring in the hundred thousand dollar homestead exemption as well when they look forward uh, when they're doing their work right now. I don't know if that is universal, so I don't want to tell anyone they should expect that. Uh, but we have heard reports of that. So it sounds like. Um Texans, if you normally got your tax bill late October, right, or early November, you're probably not going to get it till a little bit later this year because they're not going to print those and send them out or have, make them available online until later. Because we're still feeling that out because there are there are deadlines in state state law that those entities are supposed to meet to to finalize their budgets and their tax rolls and and put all those things out. But um, we have heard some reports that some, uh, you know, finalizations of those things are a little bit behind. Um, so I don't feel like I can say with 100% certainty, it, like exactly when taxpayers should expect, expect to see that it might be just a skosh later than normal, but they do, they do still have those deadlines they have to follow and they're going to do everything they can to meet them. So this may be a different year. It may not be. You never know. The the intent, as we understand it with the legislation, was to have as much of it done as quickly as possible. And so, you know, that's that's the hope. Uh, there's always devil in the details of rolling something out in real life rather than in theory on paper. So we'll see how it goes. So this is a, and I want to make sure that our listeners truly understand, this is a pass or a fail type vote. This is not like a percentage needs to be met in order for it to pass. Yeah, 50% plus one. 
And I mean, let's let's I mean, let, that's worth talking about, too, Jennifer, because normally in um, constitutional amendment elections, you're seeing turnout statewide at about 10 percent. So there's um, 17 and a half. Um, there's 17 and a half million registered voters in the state of Texas. So look for a turnout somewhere between 1.6 and 1.8 million. Now, you mentioned earlier, Brandon, I want to go back to this, about the homestead increase. The homestead, currently today, the 40000 that's out there, that's just reduction on school taxes. It's not a reduction on the overall. It's just the school tax portion for the homestead exemption. The new increase or uptick to 100000 would just be on school taxes. Every other taxing authority is going to tax at the higher rate, less the exemption. Is that correct? They're going to tax on the assessed value. Okay, so it sounds like this is a three-year, you know, let's see how this works. And then there may need to be in three more years a new budget that comes up and vote, like you said earlier. And It's not, I mean, it's not a real simple system, right? Some of it's permanent, right? The homestead exemption, if it gets into the Constitution, sure, it could be unwound, but I don't, it's hard to envision voters taking that out of the Constitution. Um, so that's... Ongoing. Now they're constitutionally mandated to, to do that. Um, the, the three year you're saying is, is the pilot program with the 20 percent appraisal on a cap on non-homestead. But then some of it is, you know, it's, we're on a two year state budget cycle. And if the state's paying for some of this stuff with the compression, we'll know for it. This is good for two years. Yeah. So the state has to do a budget every time the legislature meets in odd years. So as Brendan said, it's a two-year budget. So in 2025, the legislature will come back and do this again. And the the appraisal cap pilot program is going through 2026. So decisions on what to do with that going forward will happen in 2027's legislative session. Okay. Very interesting. Like it's, there's all these like intricacies of how things work, right? I, I've been around the association and, you know, going to Capitol Hill in D.C. and you know, going to the Capitol here in, in Austin. And it's very complicated. It's not easy. It, very much not. Uh, with, with these tax systems like this, uh, particularly when they involve school funding. You know, we, we joke, but it's not really that much of a joke that there's like six people in the state who really, really understand it. The rest of us just like hope to understand, uh, you know, big parts of it. <laughs> it's really <laughs> yes. yes. You could, I could turn this whole wallet behind me into one of those like crazy person with the strings connecting all over. Uh, yeah, it is, it is not simple, uh, you know, but we will t- uh, talk with a lot of people who are tax experts, people who have been working on these policies for decades, uh, who will say that, you know, it's not perfect, but it is probably the, the best in the country still. Yeah. And it's better than what we had before. So that's right. So let's move on to school funding via property taxes. We talked a little bit about this already, but I want to talk about more about there's speculation. And, you know, I'm going to pick on the governor for a second because he said this and, you know, and being interviewed, he, he would like to take school funding out of property taxes. But you have states like California and Florida that already have that system set in place, right? They have really low tax rates. They they fund it through a sales tax rate, not a, a, um, a property taxes. And 
what I see from that is I see it's not an equal share, as Julia, you mentioned before. I mean, you mentioned it's it's not an equal share because the person that doesn't spend all their money, saves all their money, doesn't spend in taxes and, and, and sales tax to fund those schools. The person who barely scrapes by and only has so many dollars to spend won't spend and fund taxes. So talk about the trajectory that you hear, see, the chatter. Do you think it's going to change beyond this? So, um, and I'm going to be really honest. I started looking away as you were talking because I was Googling really quick to see what... uh, if there is someone who has a list somewhere of states that do not use property taxes to fund schools, uh, is a very, very small percentage of states that don't. Um, I actually can can tell you that Minnesota does not. They uh, All of the general school funding is just part of the state's general revenue, but they do... Um, they have different sources, you know, every state kind of uses different sources of money. So local, local property taxes, I mean, um, but the vast majority of, of states and, and local entities do collect property taxes that go to schools. And so the property tax unpopular as it is, particularly in a state like Texas, where we're not offsetting it with as many other types of taxes, because we don't also have an income tax. Uh, <clears throat> so that takes away uh, one, one segment of funding that other states utilize. So we have a higher property tax rate because of that. Uh, yeah, to, to talk about uh, moving to a sales tax-based system is... Um, is complicated. The property tax is is not popular, but it is stable. To your point, uh, consumption taxes, sales taxes, people have a lot more personal control over what they do and don't spend. And, uh, you know, we, some of us maybe talk big and we don't actually change our spending habits quite as much as we like to think we do. Um, all the time, but there are really specific circumstances where you do see like a direct correlation to a tax rate and how much people spend. You see it when gas gets really, really expensive. People start finding alternate methods of transportation. They start carpooling more. Uh, They, you know, whatever it is. And so similarly with sales tax to, to make up for what we what we put into schools. Uh, let me let me go back and say this a different way. The property tax in Texas annually is. I don't have an exact figure right now, but I know what it was several years ago. So just sort of doing a little mental leap of where we might be today in 2023, it's over $70 billion a year that the property tax brings in. And to try to make that up with sales taxes only would have our sales tax rate be somewhere in the 20 to 25% range. And that is like, if you're suddenly getting charged 20% on, you know, the clothes you buy or the tchotchkes you get, whatever it is. It's not sustainable. I don't think it's sustainable for, regardless of what you make, whether you're a high wage earner or a low wage earner, it's not sustainable for anyone because the high wage earner, like you said, is going to decide what to buy and what not. And then the low wage earner is just not going to be able to. 
there's a couple other complications about that too. I mean, it would have to, in a situation like that, you'd have to expand the base of the sales tax. So things that are exempt now, like food and some food and medicine and some services would all have to be included in the tax base. So you're talking about not only a higher tax, but a broader based higher tax. That's a good point. In Texas, we do uh, we do exempt a lot of things from sales taxes more than people realize. I think I've seen some uh, some reporting that says that we actually exempt more things than we tax. So there's there's a discussion to be had there about what could potentially be brought into the sales tax that's not currently being taxed to you know that and that could take some of the pressure off having to push the sales tax rate super high. Um, but it's still, you know, that's, that's a, it's a real challenge to get to. So, you know, I think that the idea of having the state use the resources that they have uh, to, to fully fund schools so that we don't have a local schools tax, school tax anymore is, is a really fantastic philosophy to, to have the state prioritize their budgets that way would be wonderful how they get there um, and whether they would have to raise additional revenue uh, through the sales tax or, or a franchise tax, which they've actually been trying to chip away at, um, or whether they'd have to make some significant cuts to the budget in other places, that's that's the bigger conversation. Uh, but it's philosophically, at least I think, it's it's not a terrible idea to have the the state look at how that could happen. But there's there's a lot of other things around that decision that would also have to happen. So besides um, increasing sales tax, which sounds like not a viable option long term, or or that would it would negatively impact um, just residents, period. But and the state, you know, pulling in some of their resources from budget. Are there any other ways that you can imagine and think that it could happen and be sustainable for long term? I would like to take time to to think about that. I mean. The, the biggest, the big three that uh, governments typically tax are sales taxes, property taxes, and income tax. We are prohibited. We are like double constitutional banned from having an income tax in Texas now. Um, it, it already was in the constitution and we doubled down two years ago and made it even more so. <laughs> um, so that's not that it could never happen, but mm, it, you know, can, it, it would be hard to imagine what the constitutional uh, ballot uh, promotion would look like on that. Like legalize an income tax, everyone go down in flames. Um, and this, the state property tax is the same way. And so we are a little bit limited. And so you have to start, you know, when, when governments get really, really limited on taxes, unfortunately, where you do see increases is in fees. Um, they can get real creative with fees. We see that you know, uh, not to keep calling attention to our friends in California, but that's that's one of the things that they've done there to counterbalance those those real low appraisal caps. And they we don't talk about it as much, but they actually also have a property tax cap that goes along with that appraisal cap, so that it limits growth year over year in the actual tax levy. Um, and so they they've gotten they've had to get really creative with. Um, 
with other fees. And we I've heard that they have like a 3% surcharge on any new development, like just the cost of development tax 3% on you're sending it to the government. They call it a fee uh, because it's specific to a project and not, you know, applied to everybody, but yeah. And so you see a lot of things like that. And uh, that's, that's kind of a death by a thousand cuts. It's a way to go. Uh, It's, it's a far less transparent way to go than a tax. Um, But taxes are just politically, publicly really challenging to, get support for because everyone understands what a tax is and they don't like it. <laughs> That's why I asked the question because I I think that the hope and the dream is that our taxes will be reduced to almost nothing. And that's not a reality. It's not a sustainable reality for long term. Um you, you like you said you've seen it in different states not work well. But um I think if you if you're told that, you know, school taxes are going to completely be eliminated from, it may be um, revenue, sh- it may be shared, and yours may be reduced um, over time. But I just think that that's what the listeners need to see and hear is, like with this, there's a lower uh, burden to the homeowner than before versus an outright just elimination. And I don't think an outright elimination is going to happen. And I think, um, again, like not to get too far in the weeds, but I think it's important for people to to remember what what we're talking about when we talk about real elimination. Uh, there is there is a pathway. It's challenging, but there's a pathway forward where the state could put in the full sum needed to pay for schools, and that would eliminate our school taxes. We do not have that same pathway for city or county property taxes or for special district taxes. So there's not really a way to, for the state to, to take revenue that they're collecting and, and fully fund our city budgets. So uh, we just want to be careful when people talk about realistically what eliminating property taxes with giant air quotes, what that could actually mean. Right. I, I hear that whether it be on a realtor group or a homeowner group or, you know, your your homeowner's Facebook group, right? Eliminate property taxes, but you don't know the repercussions of that. Everyone says that, but it's been my experience in politics that there is very little correlation um, in voters' minds between things they vote for and their tax bill. So if you vote for, you know, a certain project to take place or a certain bond to take place, I mean, that's those are funded by property taxes and that's everyone likes the projects that happen. They're mad about property taxes, but they also want the services. So making that connection in people's minds, I think a lot of people are you know, generally fine with, you know, what if you if you're going to pass this bond and we're going to do some road projects, that's great. Uh, we need new roads and that's the, the way to pay for it. Um, but I, I've also heard a, a, a lack of understanding in voters minds. And that's why like voting in these things is so important, particularly those local and low turnout elections where you can kind of, like I said, punch above your weight class. Well, one of those low turnout elections was, I think it was 2017 bond election was the big roadway bond election. And, you know, a mobility um, was a big part of that. And, you know, now we're having some of that, you know, progress in that bond. They're spending those dollars that the, the voters said yes. 
And now you're having chatter saying, why are we doing this? Why are we spending this money? Well, you, you residents voted on it and they have to spend the dollars that you say to use. You can't now not spend those money unless it goes back to, you know, another bond and say, don't spend this money again. Yeah. And that was, I think that was a local bond election, but again, the, you're looking at these are these are just a very small segment of the population making these decisions for everybody because quite frankly a lot of people uh, I'm looking this is not the same exact election but the 2017 general election the turnout statewide was 6.73 percent so that's 875,342 people voted in that election statewide so that means that 90. 5.27% of our eligible voters, registered voters, ceded their power to 6.73%. Which is scary. It's, 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 it's either scary or not, depending who's voting, right? I'll tell you this. It's been my experience that angry people vote. People who are happy don't, they think everything's great and they don't usually vote. One of our um, topics, or one of, of the, the items in the... Um, Amendment 4 was um, the changes to the county appraisal districts. It sounds like that there's going to be a newly elected, the way that the board members are elected, there's going to be at least three people, I'm going to call it voted on the island, um, a public vote. It's not going to be behind the scenes anymore for at least three of the board seats. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and it's not that three of the current board seats will now be elected. It's they're adding three seats to the to the existing board. So it's typically, I believe, five, uh, five board members now. So it will be eight uh, plus the tax assessor collector, who is also an elected role, will now be an ex officio member of those boards of directors. Um, that is going to apply only to the uh, about the 50 largest counties in Texas. Uh, so it's not for everybody. It's for counties who have a population of 75,000 or more, which winds up being about 50 right now. So as counties grow, uh, they or or shrink, that that list of who that applies to may change. Um, but that will be who it applies to, at least to start. And those folks will first be elected on the May ballot in 2024. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Again, in disclosure, I am uh, professionally required to say that Texas Realtors does not support uh, the election of anybody involved in the Central Appraisal District. That was a pivotal part of the 1979 legislation that we've talked so much about to have those folks be appointed and not be elected. That was really, really important to the legislature back then because they wanted to depoliticize the property valuation process. So the chief appraiser um, and all of the, the board members um, and the review board members to have them be appointed rather than elected because elections, elections can get swirly. Brandon can talk about that more. Well, Jennifer, what, I mean, they're supposed to be, as Julia said, non-political. They're supposed mm -hmm. to you know, appraise property, right? That's it. That's, that's what they do. Right. So what are they going to run on? They have no foundation. They're going to run on what? Lowering your taxes, lowering your appraised value. They don't have that. They have the ability to lower your appraised value, but they do not have the ability to lower your taxes. And that's one of the things that we, we try to remind people all the time. And it's, uh, it's a little bit like nails on a chalkboard for, for me, at least Brandon, you can 
maybe you as well, when people say that they're going to protest their taxes at the, at the appraisal district, they're not, you're not. The, the appraisal district has nothing to do with your taxes. They are telling you how much the government thinks your house is worth. Now, yes, we understand, of course, there is a correlation there uh, to ultimately what your tax bill will or will not be. But as I said before, if the taxing entity wants to take in X amount of dollars for property tax levy, it doesn't matter if they value your house at a dollar, they're going to put a tax rate on you that gets them the dollars that they need. So that's why uh, we, we have uh, supported the depoliticization, that's a tough word, uh, of those positions and why we've opposed uh, having elected roles in that space before. Again, uh, this this year, we, we supported the overall package, including that. We expressed to the legislators that we still had concerns about that piece, uh, but that the overall uh, compromise bill was, you know, one we wanted to support moving forward. So these, this is how it works in compromise and negotiations, right? Uh, but we do, you know, I think it's worth saying that we have concerns about what that's going to look like. And Brandon's point about what are they going to run on? I can't wait to see. And, you know, I think that. Well, the big the big buzzword that came up that I saw right through this was transparency. So. Is this person going to stand on the sideline with their sign going, I'm going to make sure we're transparent, we're doing all the right things, right? But you're just a person from the outside coming in. You don't work day in and day out in the entity that is assessing, you're not an assessor, you're not an appraiser, you're, right? you're not doing all that work. But then I go back to the county appraisal district didn't establish the value, the market value. The buyer and the seller did who went in the contract to buy the house determined the market value. The county appraisal district is just assessing what market value is based on what's happening in the marketplace. So... I don't know how this is going to be more. I don't know how I'm, I'm with you. I don't see how this is going to make this the appraisal district more transparent, having an outsider on the inside. Maybe it would be helpful. Um, I can. This is just from one of our central appraisal districts. They kind of have a nice little rundown of what the job of the the board of directors of a central appraisal district is. So th this is the job that we will be electing people to do. Um, the central appraisal district board of directors appoints the chief appraiser. So that does have a direct line to how uh, properties are, are valued. Um, they do contract reviews and they, they review and approve contracts. They adopt the budget for the central appraisal district um, and ensure that they have audits and all of that good stuff to make sure that they're functioning financially properly. They also uh, work on if there are any lawsuits, the board of directors will, will review that. Um, and they, they appoint uh, a taxpayer liaison officer, which is a role that is uh, designed to be the go-to person for, for taxpayers that have struggles. That is not a limited list, but that's the primary list of, of what an appraisal district board of directors does. So when I look at that list, I hear a little sweat equity, right? And I, yep. I mean, what? <laughs> there is a job to do. There's a job certainly. to do. And <laughs> I'm going to say this, and this is me saying this as a individual and as a realtor who has sat on 
board of directors and committees at the local, state, and national level in the real estate space, the person who says, I'm going to get in because something's wrong and I'm going to be on that board or I want to, you know, campaign to be on the board or have a seat on that committee or whatever, they quickly get on the inside and realize there's not a lot to fix on the inside. They're things, they function the way they are for a reason. And then you have people on the outside mad at the people going inside because they say they're going to make a change and there's no change really made from a grand scheme of things. Brandon, so you nodding your head. Yeah, I, I mean, that's everyone runs for office thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be smart and I'm going to fix things that everybody has, before me has failed to fix. I'm going to be the one that does it. And you get up there and you realize the scope of the problem and it, it's, you know, a lot. <laughs> People are smart. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's an important lesson in civil service that, uh, and people get really frustrated with incremental change. You know, people want, want big change, but big change is really rare. And so incremental range is also, a, in, sorry, incremental change is also a success. That's, yeah. So let's focus on the budget meetings because that's where a, consumer or a homeowner can get involved at that local level and understand how that money is being spent and why do you need, you know, these dollars and why are you asking for that? So when do those budget meetings happen? The summertime, uh, generally, um, you know, individual results may vary, but uh, for anyone who wants to, you know, whether you're signing up to actually speak at a budget meeting, or you just want to listen in, uh, Texas Realtors has a resource and also the state legislature created a resource uh, that will help you find those schedules. So Texas Realtors, we have a website called knowyourtaxes.org that will send you to uh, actually, so legislation that was passed a couple years ago, required each of the central appraisal districts to put some information out into the world that kind of collects when those budget meetings are happening for all of the taxing entities in their jurisdiction. So our site kind of aggregated that and you can go find find your own and see when those meetings are posted. The state of Texas uh, created one with legislation um, that is uh, texas.gov slash property taxes. So same deal. You can you can find your CAD, you can find your taxing entities and see when those budget hearings are being posted. We acknowledge and, and want to say up front for folks that the budgeting stuff is more complicated. Those are, it's not just a one-shot meeting. Those are conversations, you know, the, your city, your county, your school district, they're having conversations now that are going to impact the budget setting they do in 2025. So it's, it's not as simple as, you know, just showing up one day and saying, I don't like that. There are things that, that people need to be paying attention to and reading and and following along with. Um, And that's not available for everybody. You know, most of us have day jobs and, uh, you know, getting to all of those meetings can be complicated, but we really, really encourage people to even just read the materials that your city or your county or whoever it is, whichever entity it is put out so that you can start to understand, you know, what the timeline of that process is, what is going into their budgets, um, 
years ago, the legislature passed a, a requirement that taxing entities have to put a cute little cover sheet on their their budget proposals that show how much money they're planning on bringing in uh, via property taxes and other sources and compare that to last year's uh, dollar figures uh, and some other little summaries on there that are actually really, really easy to read. And so if you go, you know, we're in Austin. So if you were to go to the city of Austin's website and just search, you know, fiscal year 2023, you can look at what they put out last year for this budget. You can see that little tax cover sheet and just get a feel for, you know, what you could, what kind of information you could be learning from that. Um, and those, we use those all the time. They're super helpful. They're, they're one of the clearest, uh, pieces of information that you see come out of a local government or any government at all. So it's, it's actually a really useful form. So, um, it's, it's hard work to, to really have an impact on the budget process, but also it's important to know, how responsive governments, particularly local governments, can be. I, I know for so many of us, it feels like, you know, our governments are kind of operating behind this giant fortress wall and it's impenetrable. And I, you know, I don't think I can stress enough to, to people that it's really not. And when constituents reach out to elected officials, especially if you call uh or, or even show up at a meeting, they really, really pay attention to that. Because like Brandon was talking about with elections earlier, not that many people do that. And so five, six of us can have a huge impact on the outcomes of those those decisions. That's what I learned in a chief praiser from Travis County. And that was one of the, the topics we talked about was Thousands and thousands of people will send upon Travis County Prison District and be really angry when they get their assessment. But the budget hearing, there'll be like 10 people in the room or a city hall meeting or a school board of directors of meeting or there will be very limited people unless something's, you know, very high level and everybody's mad about it, right? But usually when the budget information comes up, everybody turn, tunes out because they're just like, oh, this is boring. But that's what impacts um, our tax base at the end of the day. <clears throat> so um, I, I agree to listen. It's hard. Um, Brandon, you mentioned Homeowners Association. That is in um, the Fourth Amendment. Um, talk about how that is going to either positively or negatively affect um, associations. I think it's can I put in some restrictions? So let me offer some clarification. There is not uh, any ballot measure this year that impacts homeowners associations. There was a lot of legislation that uh, the, the legislature worked on this year that related to homeowners associations, but none of that specifically uh, led to a constitutional amendment. So homeowners associations will see the, the benefits of the property tax reform the same way that the uh, other property owners will, but yeah, there's not a, there's not a specific homeowners association piece in that. Okay. Perfect. <clears throat> and then lastly, um, involvement, realtor involvement through association, tree pack, you know, <clears throat> you know, Brandon or Julia, whoever wants to take this, you know, let's talk about why realtors have a vested interest in politics. 
I mean, I think Julia and I have a very similar outlook on this. That, uh, whether you're talking about federal or state or local, real estate is one of the most heavily regulated industries there is. Um, it's people who are elected and appointed to positions. They're making decisions about the way that realtors and homeowners and everything about real estate is those people are decision makers are making decisions and creating policy and the environment for the way we do business. So it's for me, it's like I, I can't imagine not being involved. Well, and the, the times that I've been involved, I've set aside my hat, whether it's been a blue hat or a red hat, doesn't matter, right? And I'm a purple hat. I'm in the middle of the rotor at that point because it's for the greater good of all. It's not to impact me and at the end of the day. It's for me to impact the whole state of buyers and sellers and homeowners and realtors. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way to say it. Um, I mean, there's so there's so much that 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 is affected by the way governments run. Talk, of course, we talked about property taxes a lot, um, infrastructure, right? Property rights, water, affordable housing, mortgage lending, land use, um, the, the getting licensed. I'm mean, getting licensed, right? You're talking about the the state holds your license. That's a a government agency. So there's so much. Again, I can't, I'm sure Julia is the same way. I can't, I can't imagine not being involved. Yes. The, the profession you are in is so heavily regulated. Uh, and while state that you were talking a little bit at the beginning about the kind of the, the feeling of, of state and versus local impact on, on our lives. I love local government, local politics, because, that's that's so it's stuff that we all connect to it's whether you know whether there's a street light or a stop sign where they need to be it's you know whether parks are being maintained uh, and so we are doing ourselves such a disservice in our community if we don't get involved in the in the state and federal stuff is a little bit higher level but those are the systems uh they're they're creating and regulating the systems that we all uh live and work under and you know, it's it's absolutely critical, particularly as professionals uh, in whatever field we might be here in real estate, that we are having a voice in who is the decision maker on those things. Well, when I've, I've looked at the skate before, gen, from my standpoint, is when there has been like legislation that could have hindered homeownership, whether it be local, national, whatever. I've seen when it the I'm going to call it the fight has started at the local level because usually if the if it's a big issue nationally, generally it's a big issue locally at the end of the day. And then if you can start that fight locally, then you can get that local person on your your wagon with you to go do the state fight and then the national fight with you because then you have someone who's in their same shoes um, advocating for you in their own lingo an understanding of why um, this matters other than just a random person. <laughs> but is there any legislation that you can think of in the last couple of years that maybe has hindered homeownership that Texas um, or has, Texas has intertwined with a local association or the national association to, you know, 
positively impact homeownership that maybe homeowners wouldn't have been aware of? <laughs> sure. So there are, and I'll speak really at the state legislative level, um, with all the best intentions, uh, we do see bills that get filed that would be counterproductive to private property rights, to the business of real estate, to the, the transfer and use of property. Uh, and so it's not a long list. Uh, for example, this year, the legislature filed over 8,000 bills and we had 155 on a list that we were like, absolutely not. This is our, op- this is our opposition list. Uh, so of those 155 bills, uh, zero of them passed. So, um, and we've had a, a very, pretty much that same success rate, uh, session after session after session. I think, um, when we did a historic search over the last, um, oh boy, uh, the last six, seven, five sessions, only one bill that we opposed in that, in all of the years total, only one bill that we, we didn't like past. And it would take me some time to go dig that one up and be able to even tell you what it was. Uh, but. That's a good success rate. I mean, if all those, I mean, because they're, like you said, there's hundreds, if not thousands of bills that try to get, get passed. We're very fortunate uh, at the state legislature that uh, we have a lot of elected officials that really do understand the importance of the real estate uh business to our state economy, to people's lives and personal wealth growth and and all of those good things. And so I think the ratio of bills that we have to be really concerned about stays pretty small. Um, And like you said, like when people, when we're able to educate those folks on what the actual outcomes of those pieces of legislation would be, um, most of the time they are very understanding and and say like, okay, you know, we're not, we're not going to push this forward. So uh, that's that's a big part of why we have uh, people like us on staff at the association, but also people out in the real world uh, like yourself and your colleagues, uh, realtors around the state who are willing to show up when we need to reach out to their elected officials and be able to tell stories about what what impacts of their proposals would be because they really do listen to that. And that's that's another space where I think it's important for people to have optimism about the impact that they can have on what actually happens in our governments. Now, do you see any tabled legislation from like this session or kind of chatter about, you know, future sessions that the things that you're watching or is it too early for that? Well, the, so the legislature won't come back again in a regular session till January, 2025. So that's a long ways away and the world can change a lot in between now and then they are going to have a a special session here. That's actually starting on Monday, um, depending on when this airs, uh, that is, uh, that will start, uh, Monday, October 9th. Is that the 9th? Um, and so we have yet to see what the governor is going to ask the legislature to work on at that point. And he can, he can choose any topic he wants. Uh, but for starters, we're anticipating that it's going to be a conversation more about schools in a way that Texas realtors will probably not be as involved in. Uh, so it's less of a direct real estate issue. Uh, so for looking forward to 2025, I mean, 
there will there will be real estate related things on the agenda in 2025. So so it seems like as a consumer, you just need to go to the Texas sites that you the pages that you recommended earlier and just watch what's happening and. Yeah. Well, we, you know, for, for our realtor members, this is the time where we are all uh, kind of gathering our, our resources, gathering our intelligence and getting ideas for what the legislature should be doing. And that's also where we hear about uh, things we should be concerned about that could come forward that could be detrimental. So it's really important. This is, this is the fact finding space for both us and the legislature. And so we, we really welcome people bringing things to our attention. Um, I think right now it's so, again, it's so hard to predict what will happen, uh, you know, not quite a year and a half from now when the legislature's regular session reconvenes. Uh, but things we are hearing people talk about right now are continuation of some of the infrastructure discussions that were had this session. Um, a lot of people we've been talking to feel like uh, water resources uh, will be a big topic of conversation. And in that, the, uh, water, uh, the supply of water is important to real estate. And we, we do get involved in those discussions. But a subtext of that, that I think you'll see a debate on sooner rather than later, is water rights. And that's a property rights issue about who who's ultimately the owner of whether it's, you know, stuff above ground or stuff below ground and how we really manage all of that. Um, so that can have a really huge impact uh, and has the potential to be negatively impacting housing and development. So that's that's one of the spaces where we'll, we'll pay a lot of attention. Uh, I think that we will continue to talk about uh, taxes. Uh, it'll probably after after this historic uh, property tax package this year, uh, legis- the legislature will likely be more in a refinement mode the next time they come together on that. You know, they'll they'll take what we saw uh, over the next year um, and see what needs to be smoothed around the edges. Uh, after, you know, it's not, it wouldn't be too common to see another gigantic thing, another gigantic package after they did a big one this year, you know, you got to kind of see how it plays out. Um, but you never know, depending on where the markets are and, and how people are feeling and where the economy is, that could change. Um, the, the legislature is talking more now than they ever have before about the availability and affordability of housing and whether there are things that they can do to improve that. Uh, And that's complicated. That is a multi-layer issue, you know, that's impacted by local things and state things and national things and global things. And so there's, uh, you know, a space for each level of government and they can't solve a whole problem, but uh, that's one I think that we'll see them continue to talk about. So there's a lot of things, like I said, um, you know, any input that people can give us, we, we want to hear it. Brandon, is there anything else that you would like to add that maybe we didn't discuss that you think that Texans need to know about going into this election or future election? I mean, yeah, voting is so important. Don't, don't cede your power. That's your power as a citizen, as an engaged citizen, as, you know, as, Somebody, you have a responsibility. I've always looked at it that way. That's the way my parents taught me. You, you have a responsibility to vote. Um, 
you mentioned the upcoming election and, and the, the conversation about water, you know, made me think about there are, there are several other amendments that uh, we think are important for property owners to consider. Um, that would be, of course, Proposition 4, we talked about property taxes. Uh, Proposition 1, which is a property rights bill related to the right to farm and um, agriculture. And that is uh, number one. Let's see. Uh, we have uh, Proposition 6, which is related to water, which is what started me thinking down this uh, this path. Um, you can, and again, your listeners can find all, a ton of information about this on uh, TexasRealtorSupport.com. Uh, Proposition 7, uh, related to energy and the electric grid, uh, shoring that up in times of peak demand. And then uh, Proposition 8 is related to uh, broadband and, and helping bring broadband to underserviced areas. Um, a lot of people think that's about rural Texas, and, and it is, but there's there's pockets of urban Texas that are that don't have good access to reliable broadband. We saw, Jennifer, we saw how important that was, and the pandemic was a really big reveal on that, right? How it how it access to broadband affects almost everything, um, from education to the work from home and um, telehealth. Um, a lot of things. Um, so having we see communities thrive when they have access to broadband. So those are those are five. Those are the five amendments that Texas Realtors is supporting. Again, your listeners can find that information on TexasRealtorsSupport.com, along with information about the other nine um, play, the concepts that the, the Association of Realtors did not take a direct position on. Uh, leave up to the will of the voters uh, and read arguments for and against at that time. So do Julia and, and Brandon, do you have any just high level tips before we depart, like that you would say to a fellow Texan who is either a buyer, seller, or homeowner about elections, about amendments, about what's happening. Always vote. Always vote. Vote in everything. Vote in everything. <laughs> vote in everything. Yeah, Jennifer, I would say, I mean, we talk about primary elections, right? It, almost no one votes in those. The average turnout is something like 30%. Um, I can actually pull up the numbers. I've got them on my screen. But that chooses the, the districts after redistricting are very partisan. So in like, I would say of the 150, say, House districts, I bet 142 of them are we know what the outcome is going to be in November because the districts are it's all decided in the primary. And then almost no one votes. Um, so next year, for instance, is a, is a presidential election. The last presidential presidential election in the general election where there's you know, very few, you know, real, tr actually it's not true in 2020 because it was pre redistricting, but voter turnout statewide was 71% in the 2020 general election in the 2020 primary, it was 28%. So you have, um, looks like in, in the primary you had at the time, 4 million voters show up, right? So to your, you need 2 million votes to win and a state with 17 million registered voters. That's not very much. Yeah, no, I think that my biggest takeaway is that your the want of um, reducing property taxes to almost nil, right? Of of getting rid of that burden from a consumer level in its entirety is not a reality that anyone in Texas should. Um, you can wish for, but it's probably not going to happen. I mean, there can be some ways to offset that burden um, because there is not a logical and feasible way to replace those costs. 
listen, I'll say again, it's an admirable goal and one that I, I think has merit to continue talking about. But uh, I always hope that it will be done with um, with honesty about what that means and what we have to either give up or uh, or change in terms of other revenue. Yeah, yeah. So if someone says they're going to get rid of school taxes and property taxes, ask what they're going to have to give up or pay to replace that. Yeah. You know, we budget conversations are really complicated, uh, but the, they come down to uh, what are our sources for money? And if we want to have, if we want to reduce our tax burden, what are we willing to cut to give up? And that's a perfectly fine conversation to have, but it needs to happen if you're going to really try to solve solve a problem. You know, and I'll say this, I had a, a, a client, a friend client of mine who um, came from California to Texas, and she was blown away by the sheer volume of percentage of tax that she pays in Texas. Like she pays more tax dollars here on a lower dollar amount than she paid in California at a higher dollar amount. And that goes to say that, you know, they're not taxed appropriately. She says, but, you know, everything was public. All values were public. You know, when people got to that ceiling and were taxed appropriately, service were abundant for those areas, right? So there wasn't a, an issue with services. <clears throat> it was when they weren't getting taxed appropriately. But she says, you know, here, she doesn't feel like the tax, the services are as abundant as they were back home because our tax base is so high, but we're not being up until now, we weren't being taxed at the appropriate levels. We were being undertaxed. Well, listen, like Cal- California and other states, again, they have other revenue sources. Most of those states are charging an income tax and, and we're not. And, and that, while on paper it's transparent, an income tax, I don't think people always pay attention to it. When I lived in states that, and I used to live in California, um, that had an income tax, you know, you kind of just focus on the end dollar amount that comes to your bank account. And if you if you take the time to look at all the different things on your on your pay stub, you know, you might get mad for a hot second about all of those taxes that were taken out, but you kind of move on from that. You don't, you don't necessarily think about it the same way. And here in Texas, because, um, we do, I feel like this is completely anecdotal. I don't actually have statistics on this, but, uh, a lot of people do elect to pay their property tax bill at the end of the year, rather than, um, escrowing it with their, with their mortgage, um, or whatever they might be doing. A lot of people like having it as a standalone. That is so much more visible. Um, and you know, you feel that when you see that bill come in, in a way that maybe you don't, if it's collected in a different way. So, um, so that, that's one part of it. Uh, where it's it's very visible here. And it is, you know, they are, we are having a higher property tax, generally speaking. And there's there's two kind of ways that you can look at that. People will, will evaluate uh, state-by-state comparisons on overall property tax dollars that are collected, but also general uh, tax rates. Those are two different things. But um, depending on which one you look at, Texas is somewhere in the top 10 of property taxes in the country, that 100%. But again, we aren't, we aren't having an income tax. Uh, and in some of our areas, we have a lower sales tax, not, not necessarily everywhere, but 
California, for example, uh, has has a local options, a state sales tax and a local option sales tax the same way that we do here. And so in some counties, you do see like a 10 percent sales tax, which feels really high. I don't know that I don't know of too many areas, if any at all in Texas that have hit that yet. So when you look at the overall tax burden, factoring in sales tax, income tax, property taxes, everything that the average Texan pays, we are actually low. Um compared to the rest of the nation. I don't know where we rank immediately, but we're but we're lower on that. But the property tax is high and it's visible. And so it feels like they're being you're being taxed a lot more. And in one space, and in one space we definitely are. And so that's when people move from elsewhere, that is a you know a very reasonable comparison where they're suddenly they're seeing this figure that is like, oh my God. But yeah. But then, you know, we have to we should remember also that things are better in other parts of that equation for our personal finances. Well, if you have any questions, listeners, about any of the amendments we talked about or any of the legislative issues discussed or just want to know how Texas realtors and realtors are advocating for your property rights, ownership, or property owners, I will be sure to include both websites or links in our show notes. That way you can get more information and a deeper dive. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Brandon, for being on with me today. I mean, I know this information is going to be informative. People are going to be hitting the polls. I thought on the 23rd is early voting, but I would like to express my sincere gratitude to all of our listeners, whether you're listening from comfort of your own home or on the go. I hope that today's episode of Urban Connect has been informative and valuable to you. If you've enjoyed the show, I would be grateful if you could consider to follow or subscribe to our podcast. Your support helps us reach a wider audience and grow the Urban Connect community. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, feel free to contact me directly at jennifer at urbanconnectpodcast.com. I value and appreciate your feedback, and I'm always open to hearing your thoughts and suggestions. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Archambault, and I look forward to connecting with you again on the next episode of Urban Connect.